Well, here we are with the Biz News Rational Radio Lunchtime webinar on a Monday, as always, only for the Biz News Premium subscribers or the Biz News Premium community. Even so, David, we're getting lots of people coming in, uh, and we also would urge you to put forward your questions as soon as possible. On screen is uh, David Shapiro and myself, but behind the scenes, the man who's pulling all the controls, Stuart Schlerman, our uh, managing editor here at Business. Jude, do you want to just take us through the technicals? Excellent. Thanks, Alec. I'm not sure there's many strings to be pulled, but it's a nice way to look at it. Um, just quickly, if you can see David and Alec on screen, and there's a little presentation underneath, and you can hear my voice, you give us a little high fives button. There we go. They're coming through nicely there. Thanks a lot. And then, as Alec mentioned, we do like to keep them very conversational. There's a little questions menu on the control panel on the right-hand side. If you put your questions in there, Alec will pass them on to David and the guests that will follow. Thanks a lot, Alec. Great, Stu. And the guests that will follow today are Piet Fulyun. Uh, da- David, why don't you tell us a little about Piet Fulyun? Um I, th- I think Pitt is the truest value investor I have ever met. And um, I, I've known Pitt from, I think, initially, I think he was at Alan Gray's not at, at one stage, but I, I remember him more from his investing days as well. But um, a, a wonderful, first of all, I think he knows Buffett better than any of us do. And he knows Buffett's philosophies. In other words, we can go all the way back to the teachings of Benjamin Graham. I don't think you're going to find a better student than, than Pitt. But also, um, his just, I think if, if you're going to learn from anybody in South Africa, there are a handful of people, one of which is going to be Pitt. I think, you know, if, if, if you're a student of investment, I think Pitt is, uh, one person that you can listen to with, uh, you know, certainly with confidence. But always entertaining and always got different views. <laughs> yeah, indeed he does. But like Mr. Buffett himself, not really mainstream. And then Russell Lamberti will be joining us later. He's he's a part of the whole Panda project. And I thought it was a good idea to ask Russell to come in after the news that we got last night, Dave, that we effectively the economy in South Africa is opening up again. Yeah, very very clever economist. Um, does his numbers, does his work thoroughly. You know, you're not going to catch him out on anything. Don't start arguing with him because he's going to beat you. Whether you like his views or not, <laughs> he's one of these chaps you listen to and say, listen, I'm not, you know, because I haven't done the homework myself. So you're not going to catch him out, but, uh, also highly respected, um, you know, in the industry. Very, very highly respected. And our good friend Gigi Alcock, who is a specialist when it comes to the informal sector, he'll have his thoughts as well. And the way we're going to do it today is uh, David and I'll talk for about the next 10 minutes, find out from Mr. Shapiro his views on what's going on uh, with the investment markets. Uh, we've got some quite uh, interesting insights there. Uh, then we'll be talking to Pitt from about quarter past 12 until half past, Russell Lamberti from 12.30 to 12.45, and then Gigi Alcock from 12.45 uh, to 1 o'clock when we finish off. Uh, just to remind you, as Stuart said earlier, please get your questions in, in as soon as possible uh, so that we can then pose the questions to our guests. And that's the whole purpose of having a webinar rather than just a podcast where uh, we would do the recording. Uh, this is a, a way for business community premium members to participate in the whole story. Well, Dave, maybe maybe we should start at the lockdown. Half the markets, if anything, reacted to it, the the move now, now that we have some detail about what's going to happen to the South African economy. We know how much damage, or we understand a lot of damage has been done um, in the eight weeks that we've had a lockdown for. Uh, but with the improvement now, opening up of the economy, have investors got more optimistic? Probably. I think we've got to wait for the evidence to come through. You know, the, the JSC is made up of so many international stocks with huge uh, influence. So, I mean, if you go through uh, our indices, um, it's, it's very heavily uh, leaning towards shares like Nasdaq and Tencent, uh, sorry, and Process, British American Tobacco, also the miners, you know, the gold shares and and uh, other mining companies, uh, platinum companies in that, which are not really reflective of what's happening in the economy. Once we go down below that, 
you know, once you go down into the retailers and into the uh, financial shares, you'll find uh, a different picture there. So you've got to look at the two different markets and that. And we've been hurt. We've been hurt on financials. Um, you know, Alec, I was looking at uh, on the weekend, I was looking at investing. And I know that they unbundled um, um, 91, but and I'm not quite sure whether the charts that we look at actually reflect that. But here's a company where over the last five years you would have lost in the region of about 15% per annum. If you look at NetBank, you're getting similar kinds of um, analysis coming through. So if you go through SA Inc., it's been a really difficult, difficult time. I know we're going to talk about Tiger Rands a little later as well. And I think there are a lot of questions that we have to ask. How much of this is economy? How much of this is lockdown? You know, when I say economy, how much of this is economics or the global economics? How much of it is lockdown specifically to South Africa? And the third question, you've got to keep probing management. You know, how much could they have done? Um, but I think um, we're going to see as we start to unlock, you know, as we start to get the economy back, whether or not they are going to be able to turn things around and, you know, swing this market better. Dave, I've got the Investec chart, for South Africa, in, in other words, Investec Limited up on the screen now. And it really hasn't done a heck of a lot for a long time. That, as you mentioned, there was the unbundling uh, of um, the uh, what is now called 91. But even so, if you were to double the Investec price, you're still looking at where it was five years ago. So it's yep, been a, exactly. a real disappointing performer and yet a great company. Well, that's the point. You know, it's, I think they've, uh, without being too critical, probably lost their identity. You know, the things have changed so dramatically in the global economy. You wonder where they are and, and how they're going to pull out of, uh, the situation. I always compare them with, uh, with Liberty Life. Remember in the sixties and seventies at the height of Donnie Gordon, um, there was, it was untouchable. No company could come close to Liberty. And yet, Things started to change in the economy. We opened up the economy from 1994, and they were never able to adapt. And in the same way, um, Investec has always been a bank that focused on the high end of their consumer, professionals. They were the professionals bank. If you were a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, you would always go there. Uh, you would go to Investec who would help finance your business. Somehow they've lost that. You know, I don't, I think other, other uh, banks have come into their territory. Um, I still have an Investec card and I can't complain. I still think that the quality of service I get is, is, um, is no one can touch that. You know, it's very difficult. So it is, it, it could be circumstances. I'm not sure, but I mean, where I'm getting at is that if I go to all the banks, you've got similar kinds of trends under a lot of pressure um, from, you know, mul multiples or PE ratios are kind of unraveling, which that's fine, you know, which, which, which they should do in an economy that is battling to grow. But um, on the other hand, and that's why when we look at our market, on the other hand, you've had process and Tencent uh, just going through the roof. They're coming under a bit of pressure now because of the Hong Kong issues now, which one can bring up a little later, etc. But, I mean, their performance has been staggering. You know, it's really, really been good. Uh, relative and and um, you know relative to other things, and they've got a big sway on where the indices end up. And then you can't ignore gold shares either, which <laughs> just have knocked the lights out. <laughs> well, I've got on the screen now the Nasdaq share price, and also going back five years. So if you'd put taken a bet on Investec five years ago or Nasdaq five years ago, the one you'd basically still have your money. The other one you'd have trebled your investment, and that kind of tells everything, doesn't it? Well, it, it is a much broader message. You know, this is the digital economy that's growing. Um, I think all that lockdown has done is hastened uh, the emergence of this digital economy was already happening. And um, I think that what you're going to find, and if you go to all markets, if you go to the U.S., you're going to find similar kinds of trends where you had, and I'm taking this from the, I, I, I actually tweeted a chart yesterday, but I took the heading from something that I'd read in the Financial Times, which was the disruptors versus the disrupted 
And the disruptors are all these, um, you know, tech companies that are, are benefiting significantly from where the global economy is pointing versus the disruptors. Those companies that are under pressure because of the, uh, lockdown and also because of the way that tastes are, are changing globally. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> David, wow. Talk about the, the, um, uh, what you do when, you, when you're stuck at home <laughs> and there's no soccer to watch. <laughs> it's quite an incredible graph, though. Uh, uh, Zoom, yeah. have you bought, did you buy Zoom? No, I didn't know it existed. I never knew Zoom existed until, <laughs> until six weeks ago. So, <laughs> how could I have one? Tesla, Tesla is no. unique. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, how can we explain that? Uh, but NVIDIA, you know, NVIDIA is a semiconductor maker that is so well placed, uh, not only for the gaming industry, but, uh, for, and, and for streaming, but also well placed in, um, you know, in, in cloud. And, and as cloud expands, and I, I picked up some numbers this weekend, which are quite incredible. You know, we've tended to ignore Indonesia and areas like this, but, um, the amount of e-commerce that's growing and demand for cloud is, you know, we're starting to see very significant numbers. So if you go down, you'll see very similar type of companies until we mm-hmm. get to the bottom, you know, the, the reds. And that's the exact opposites. Walgreen, uh, Dow, which is a chemical company, JP Morgan Bank, Exxon, yeah. Wells Fargo. Hasn't that been a great disappointment for Warren Buffett? Has he started selling, Dave? Is he, is he getting out of Wells Fargo? Very little, I think. I think he got out of some JP Morgans and he got out of his Goldman Sachs holding. Um, but, uh, he did, he did ease back. I don't, I don't think he's Wells. I don't think he's got out of his Wells. I've got the South African ones as well, which I, I used as winners and losers because I don't know whether we've got the disruptors. Um, there you are. There's, there's the South African ones. These are in rands and, and I, I'll give a warning because, um, you know, there's, um, but look at those as well. And, um, it, it, it's quite diverse what, what the kind of gain is versus the losers. But process 142, you know, if you put a, I like to do it like this, put a hundred rand in today, it's worth, not today, since the first of January, 142.81. And NASPES as well. So some very significant gains. And now you can see the difference in the markets, you know, where it's these international stocks that have um, really held up. And I, and I put, I put gold shares, uh, into that kind of, you know, into the rand hedge, uh, category. But you can see the different performances. Sadly, down there is City Lodge, which uh, it's a wonderful business. I mean, it, it's just been hurt by, you know, by the lockdown on travel. Um, Sassel, we know the story. And, 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 and the banks there, look at Nedbank, 42, 41%, uh, sorry, 60% are down. Since the first of January, and naturally the property companies as well. David, it's actually a, a lovely segue to Pit Fulyun, who I see has, uh, well, he's in the back end. Pit, if you could unmute yourself uh, and bring up your your screen. Uh, okay, there we go. We don't see you yet. Um, if you uh, are able, there we go. The technology, yeah. There we go. Hello. Nice. Hello. Alex, yeah. hello, David. Pete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, David was singing your praises earlier. He said there isn't a more uh, – um, how did you describe it, David? Uh, a better person to learn from about value investing than Pete Fulun in South Africa. He, he says you're a purist. Are you still a purist in, in the value game, I am. Pete? I'm, I'm one of the last purists out there. Uh, there's not many of us left. I'm not sure there's many people who want to learn value investing at this point. <laughs> but it's been, it's been an incredible journey, uh, that, that you've had in the most recent years. And if value investors were to have found one stock that they would have gone for during all of this time, or one of the stocks, and I've asked you to have a look at, at Tiger Brands. Yes, I know you, you like it a lot. Uh, it's, Maybe you can just explain to us why and and what well, the heavens is going on there. I think I should uh, just put a caveat to that. I used to like the stock a lot uh, up until about 10 years ago. Um, 
used to be one of my favorite stocks. I mean, it's a, it's it's one of those businesses which are very fashionable today. Um, the so-called quality businesses that have strong brands, operated high margins, that have stable earnings. You know, these days most portfolios are filled with these sort of things. You know, globally, I'm talking companies like Nestle and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, so it used to be a company like that, uh, but then it decided instead of investing behind its brands, it would start making acquisitions mainly into Africa. Uh, so it's acquiring other business in Africa. That started about 2011, 2012. Uh, and that's when um, I personally started getting very worried about the business and started divesting because of the acquisition strategy. Um, and that has turned out, uh, now with the benefit of hindsight, to be, have been a very poor strategy. Um, so, you know, if we look at the earnings over the last 10 years, since 2000 and, yeah, 2010, so nine years worth of earnings, earnings per share now, well, at September 2019, at their last year end, are lower than they were in September 2010. So they've actually gone backwards over the past nine years. Uh, dividends per share just explain yes, that again. Sorry. The profits are lower now than they were 10 years ago. On a per share basis, the earnings are lower now than they were 10 years ago. And so are their dividends. Uh, so you can see that there's been a massive erosion of the brand premium they used to be able to charge because they didn't invest behind the brands and they rather chose to make acquisitions and buy companies in other jurisdictions. And that's been, uh, and sadly, that's, that's been uh, the death knell, not the death knell, but it's, it's, it's been a strategy of many South African companies. And 99% of them have lost a lot of money with that strategy. And Tiger Brands, no exception. So 10 years ago, there we got it on the screen. Uh, the share price was 157 Rand. Today, the share price is 155 Rand. So if you'd put money into this company 10 years ago, uh, you would be wishing today you'd put it into a bank account. Yeah, uh, and, and it's it, classically, it should have been the sort of company that compounded the earnings quite steadily over time because it sells stuff people want to buy and it can charge a premium for those things because it's a branded business. Uh, and it should have been a, a fantastic outperformer over the past 10 years, but the corporate strategy, I think, um, failed them. Sorry, there's one other point I, I think I'd like to make is that if you read their latest annual report, the remuneration review runs for 25 pages. And no one can, you, you can't make out what's going on there. Uh, the CEO's review of the business runs for four pages. The, um, a, a section titled Addressing Material Stakeholder Interest runs for three pages. And uh, the company performance runs for 11 pages. So the things that are really material to shareholders to uh, con communicate the shareholders and tell them what's going on in the business runs for, what's that, 18 pages. But the remuneration report runs for 25 pages. It's so complicated, nobody can make out what's going on there. And despite the fact that EPS is lower now than it was 10 years ago, executive remuneration is up 60% over that period. So, I mean, it's a poster child for everything that's wrong. Everything that's wrong with capitalism? With, no, with uh, the way uh, uh, company executives are remunerated, which is nothing to do with the performance of the business. I mean, those things have been divorced. So as opposed to child for the divorce of executive remuneration with company performance. But if you work for this company, and uh, David Shapiro, it would be lovely to, for you to come in here. You knew Rudy Frankel, didn't you, David? The uh, Well, he was he – was, the master of this ship for many years and did terribly well. I, well, I knew that. I, I know that. I still know the family very well. And uh, you know, Tiger Brands was always. Um, I mean, Pitt says it, it's a it's a brand company, and uh, they stood behind their brands. There was a lot of commodity, you know, still to this day. I mean, what do they make? They make bread and they make maize. You know, it's maize meals and various other commodities like that. So there's a lot of trading behind that. And in order, their, their, their success came from understanding the markets in which they, um, in which they traded. That was the old time, um, Rudy Frankel and the successes thereof. And they've gone completely off guard. But, you know, the question that I wanted to ask Pitt, and I mean, we're going to lead towards that. I don't want to get away from Tiger Brands is that how do you warn investors 
about management. You know, those managers who are more interested in actually acquisitions than actually standing behind them. You know, you can pick up those traits um, all along the line. You know, I, I come under a lot of criticism because sometimes I'm, I, I'm uh, a little forthright or outspoken and that, and communities come back at me. But I'm saying the evidence is there. You know, in Tigers, Dangote, what did they write off? Two, over two billion, I don't know, more. Listeriosis, and now we have more issues. And yet management stays. No one ever, <laughs> no one gets rid of management. <laughs> Just have a look on the screen now, Peter, if you would. This is from their latest set of results, their half year to the end of March. Mm, yeah. The continue. There we go, 557 million rand that's been written off through bad investments that have been done in the past. Now, when, and that's why I mentioned capitalism a little bit earlier. Surely capitalism is supposed to be all about managers working for shareholders, shareholders getting cross and then bringing management to account. What yeah. happens in a business like this? Look, I, I think um, it's, there's a couple of, there's a whole bunch of strands here, but I think the most important thing is that this poor performance is reflecting the share price. I mean, the share price has been underperforming the average company out there for 10 years now as well. So uh, capitalism works. Uh, remember, the, the, the capital markets are there to allocate capital to those that deserve to take that capital and grow it over time and allocate it away from those that don't. And capital has been allocated away from Tiger Brands for 10 years now. Um, the share price is half of what, a third of what it was five years ago. Um, so capitalism works. Uh, it just sometimes takes a long time to come to where it should be. Uh, but I think coming back to the acquisition story, I think that's always a red flag. When companies go out there and make big company transforming acquisitions into different jurisdictions, the base rate of success in those sort of acquisitions is negligible. Um, so I think that's always a red flag and it's always a sign that one should uh, probably walk away from the company. But remember also, that at the time, in 2011, 2012, 2013, it was very fashionable to invest into Africa. The investment banks were all running around selling African funds to investors. Uh, lots of companies were investing into Africa. And, you know, five years later, it was very fashionable to invest into the UK or Australia. Uh, companies do these things when they're fashionable and the short-term shareholders approve them. Uh, you know, the share price of Tigers went up when they bought Dangote originally. It was seen as an exciting development. But the, the real question is, have they rock bottomed yet? And, and I've put that uh, graph from the Tiger Brands presentation up on the screen. Market shares under pressure across the board. Every mm -hmm. single area of their business, their market shares have fallen yeah. year on year. Yeah. So clearly they haven't quite gotten to the bottom of uh, well, to the worst spot yet. No, I don't think you can you can say that that is the bottom. That you know it looks like it's continues to decline. I, I think um, it's the same board or largely the same board in charge largely the same management team in charge. Um, and until you see a large-scale clearing out and refocusing your business uh, behind investing behind the brands, you know, going back to that strategy, um, I don't think you can say that it's reached bottom by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. Well, uh, Pitch, what has reached bottom? Last time we spoke, uh, <laughs> a couple of months ago, you were quite excited about what what looked good in South Africa. Um, yeah. It would do that. Well, we've had some big wipeouts. I hope you bought Sassel at 28 Rand or at least in that. <laughs> in that yeah. Uh, so what looks good is Africa, you know, as I said a few months ago, before the whole COVID-19, COVID-9 or whatever they call it thing, um, uh, I was excited about the prospects for investments in South Africa because I thought they had reached quite low levels. Obviously, through the market correction and crash in SA Inc. things in March, they've become even cheaper. Uh, so all that means to me is that the prospect of returns are higher. But that comes with a big caveat, and that is if this economy actually recovers. Um, and I think the jury is still out on that. That still needs to happen. So if the economy goes into a complete tailspin and we go down the Venezuela slash Zimbabwe route, um, then you're not going to make any money at all from investing in SA Inc. Uh, even, uh, you know, good banks trading on PEs of four look like investment bargains, but if we go that route, then, you know, all bets are off. How high would you put that risk? I think that risk is not negligible. I think there's at least a 20% chance of us going down that road. 
That's a that's a very high well, one in five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like a five to one shot at the races. Uh, you would definitely not discount well, it. Four to one. It's a four to one. Four to one shot. Mm, even worse. Twenty <laughs> percent. <laughs> so what do you do then as a as a South African who's trying to protect protect your wealth if you have these big question marks? So I would I would say, look, if you take a step back and look at the global landscape at this point in time, um, what is cheap? Emerging markets are cheap. Both the assets and the currency are cheap. They are cheap in historical terms, long-term historical terms, super cheap. Small caps are super cheap. Now, South Africa is full. South Africa is an emerging market. Our currency is undervalued and our company is undervalued for very understandable reasons. But the same is it's the same in Brazil. It's the same in Russia. It's the same in Mexico. And they've got other problems, different problems, not the same problems as us, but these assets are all cheap because they are emerging market assets and the world, the world is turned off of those assets at this point in time. Um, so for a South African investor, you know, I would allocate a portion of my assets towards emerging market assets of which South Africa is one. Um, but I would, uh, I would probably have the bulk of my assets offshore. Um, the, you know, cause when you build a portfolio, you're not, you don't put everything in the cheapest asset because that asset has risk attached to it. I think you allocate some of your, some of your capital towards the cheaper side of the market, but you also, with your portfolio of assets, you try and diversify and you try and protect as well. And therefore, I think a significant offshore exposure is sensible at this point in time. Uh, Lynn Giovanni uh, wanted to know, will the negative attitude worldwide and the US, in other words, this uh, new Cold War that is now coming to the surface between America and China going to affect Alibaba and Tencent and by definition NASPERS? Um, it, it could. Uh, there are many ways in which it could affect it. I, I think if there is a massive trade war between the US and China, I think Chinese assets and companies could be constrained in how they operate in the world. That's a possibility. I think one also has to be cautious of you know, the ownership structure of Chinese assets. Um, when you buy a share in Tencent, you do not own equity in the business. You own a piece of paper, which is a contract that the Chinese government have, has awarded to a Hong Kong listed entity that gives it some of the cash flow out of the Chinese business. That contract has not been tested under pressure in court, ever. Uh, you know, and as trade pressures intensify and those sort of things, you know, those contracts could be you know, they could become the subject of test cases in court, which one might or might not win. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but I think that is a significant risk, which nobody talks about, but it, it's there. And I think if one is an investor, you need to take cognizance of these risks. I mean, make no mistake, Tencent is a wonderful business, a fantastic business. Alibaba, fantastic business. And these businesses could be the next game changers. Well, they're already big game changers, but they could be generational game changers. However, uh, one has, you know, again, just like you wouldn't put all your money in South Africa because it's cheap, you probably wouldn't put all your money in those businesses because they are so good, uh, because there are risks attached to them. Pit for you. Uh, just before you go, Pit, uh, how's the merger with Counterpoint going? Is it settling down it's, yet? It's going very well, actually. Um, it's a good team of people. We think broadly similar, although there are some different points of view. It's always very healthy. But we've been working very well together. I mean, as luck would have it, uh, we uh, we started the merger on the 1st of March, and then we had the whole COVID thing. So we've all been remote, working remotely and communicating often and, and well, and, and it's gone very well. So And it's a good bunch of people. Uh, I'm enjoying working with them, and I hope I can say the same for them. Pit Filion from RCM and uh, the recent deal we were talking about there was the merger with CounterPoint. Thanks, Pete, for, for joining us today. Thank David? Thanks. Uh, Pete, uh, Pete waved a flag there, and I know it is a flag that uh, quite a few people have been waving recently about, I know Sean Pesha, you know, you remember Sean, uh, used to be here with, uh, yeah, he's now running his own show in the UK. But he's, he's been saying, watch out for NASPERS because of these the way that it's been structured. Now, not too many South African investors are bothering themselves about that. No, it's 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 complicated. <laughs> it's a it's a complicated structure. You know, um, I always I won't forget uh, the Cocky Coyman. Uh, you know, Cocky 
who who really used to go into uh, areas that um, few of us would, you know, we, we fear to tread there. And he said one of the big issues about going into China and areas than that, you never know who you're dealing with. You know, are you dealing with the Ruperts or the Kebbles? And you only find out later to your detriment. Uh, I've seen other descriptions called lions and the hyenas, which, uh, you know, other people have described. And I think when you go into China, and when you expose yourself to China or to areas like that, just be careful. You know, um, we don't know their governance rules that well. You know, we always, when we, when I was studying accountancy, we always used to say, oh, this is Chinese bookkeeping. You know, that was 40, 50 years ago. But it is difficult to understand. And I think, you know, Pitt's right. Just be careful. You're exposing yourself to it. But don't, you know, don't get too overexposed to businesses like that because of those very reasons. It's hard if you're South African not to be overexposed to NOSPAS. It's such a huge part of this, of this, of this country. I know. I know. We've got Bob Van Dyke. You know, we've got Bob Van Dyke and we've got, um, you know, we've, we've got the NOSPAS organization behind us, you know, keeping good track of it. But, uh, you know, Pitts is in, in the same way as they're going for Hong Kong now. You know, they're going in there saying, well, come and get us, you know, come from, come and get us. We're going to do what we like. You never know what can happen in a situation. Although I think it's pretty unlikely. I think the odds are, um, you know, odds are pretty low that they would ever challenge that, you know, okay. challenge the structures and, and, and hold back on cash flow. Risks are always things to take account of. Russell Lamberti joins us now. Russell, thanks for, uh, for, for coming onto the show this week. We last week had a couple of your colleagues from Panda, uh, who were giving us some really good insights, uh, into where the, why they believe that the lockdown has been a disaster for South Africa and uh, terribly exaggerated. I think, I think they said, um, both Nick Hudson and Peter Castleton that there was merit in the first three weeks to get the healthcare system ready, but the the subsequent five weeks, uh, their numbers show that, or, or certainly your your numbers at Panda show that that perhaps has not been that smart a, a view. Uh, I'm now reading stuff, and I'm not sure if you you read the latest um, report uh, newspaper where R. W. Johnson has been saying this is a, an, an unmitigated disaster and it's something that generations of South Africans are going to pay for. David says uh, we mustn't argue with you because you're far too clever. So we are all listening very carefully. If you can unpack the way you're seeing things and, and the way the economy is going to be impacted. Thanks, Alec. It's good to be with you. I hope I'm coming through all right. Um, very yeah, so so you've summed it up fairly well. I would probably take a slightly harder line than than Nick and, and Peter. Um, I I've been skeptical of the lockdown uh, pretty much from day one. You know, I think I think that the burden of proof, Alec, to to shut down life as we know it, to shut down society, um, business, you know, congregating, just everything that is social life. To bring a complete stop to that, I think the burden of proof should be extremely high. And what we got was um, a couple of dodgy models from epidemiologists. We got some fear in the media. And, um, you know, this is, this, is, this is to say nothing about the actual severity of the virus, which can be debated, certainly could have been debated back then. It's getting more clarity now. But the, the burden of proof, I think, was very high. So... Um, I think from day one, this unleashed what is be has become a, a very big disaster. Now, look, if it had been capped at three weeks, if it had been just the the 21 days, and we'd gone straight from that into into a full open economy again, with you know with the usual uh, risk mitigation measures that that we we recognise we need, you know, I think I think we we probably could have just about come out of this okay. Um, and and escape the worst of the worst of it. You know, three weeks is is a little bit like a December holiday, um, and you could almost have justified that sort of situation. And 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 perhaps we could have foregone a, a real December holiday at the end of this year to to you know maybe make up for that or something to that effect. But once we started pushing beyond the three weeks, once we pushed it to five, once we started creating tremendous uncertainty around levels, different levels, level five, level four. 
when is it going to be? And now we've pushed on to what will become, I think, about nine weeks of pretty hard lockdown. Um, yeah, I think this is, I think this has opened up a real can of worms in terms of hunger, poverty, uh, biz, you know, destroyed businesses, many, many marginal small businesses, um, you know, are, are closing and, and many of them won't come back. And I mean, we could go on and on. I think, I think there's, you know, there's so much that one could talk about here. And, um, what we've done in the Panda initiative really is just to, is just to take this intuition, which is, Hang on a minute. If you close down life and if you close down the economy, this is not a situation of, you know, lives versus versus money or something trite like that. This is this is saying that the economy is how we live. This is this is how we sustain ourselves. And if you if you start uh, destroying the, the productive capacity of, of society, if you start uh, destroying businesses, if you start creating mass unemployment. You're going to get second, third, fourth round effects that you didn't quite anticipate at the start, right? And one of those is there's a certain group of people in particular that are right on the margins. They're right on the edge of, of that margin between just about sustaining themselves and, and what we would know as extreme poverty. It's not just those people that we're concerned about, of course, but, but it's that group that, that can really shift into that extremely vulnerable place where we know Health outcomes are worse. Mortality goes up. And so we were, you know, we were taking that intuition and trying to put some, some numbers to it versus, you know, what are we losing versus what are we gaining on this lockdown? We just don't think it's close. You know, we, we really don't think it's, it's, it's even a close call. It's, it's, it's manifestly so much worse to have done uh, what we've done. If you have a look at the, the history, and I, I guess there always is, a way of understanding today if we look back into the past but at at one point in time it did seem like for instance the UK was going to continue uh, almost like the Swedish uh, effect where they would tell their, their people to have social distancing but they wouldn't lock down the economy then you got the report that came out from Imperial College which said left to its own devices this Virus will kill 550,000 people in Britain and 2 million in 2.2 million in the United States. And that seemed to shock everybody. I guess the question now is why was that data not better analyzed? Because it looks at, at worst, the UK and the US will have one tenth of those mortalities. Yeah. And of course, the counter argument to that is that the, the people who, who, if you like, support the imperial approach would say that uh, well we're living you know we're now living in the counterfactual um to that original scenario the original scenario was if you don't do anything but but having lockdown oh look now you've gotten all these benefits and we can't know what life would have been like if we hadn't locked down thankfully therefore we have countries that have not locked down that um give us a sense on how wrong the imperial model was uh, if you look at the imperial model estimations for Sweden, for example, um, way way above where where Sweden's actual uh, infection and death you know outcomes have been. Um, Sweden, of course, has not done nothing, um, but it's generally relied on its people to take the necessary precautions, and that's actually been my argument from day one: is that in such a complex problem. You need to you need to diffuse and to decentralize risk management decisions. You can't expect one person to make a risk management call for 60 million people, or for 300 million people, or a billion people. This is not how real world risk management works. Everyone faces a radically different set of trade offs in their life. Some people don't need to work; they can stay at home. Some people have to work. Some people are young. Some people are old. Some people live far from towns or close to towns, and, and, and this is a hugely complex issue. And I think, I think all things considered, uh, you know, there's no perfect government, there's no perfect country, but all things considered, I think we're going to see this, the Swedish approach, you know, resoundingly affirmed by, by the evidence. Not only are, are they, are they experiencing a pandemic or, or an epidemic, pretty pretty much in line with their with their european peers but the early indications are that their their economy is is doing way better than everyone else's 
Um, and that's notwithstanding the fact, of course, that being an open economy like Sweden, you're going to suffer the results of everyone else's shutdown. You know, it's going to hit your trade. It's going to hit your imports and export sector. It's going to affect you. But but even even outside of that, Sweden is performing considerably better on the economic front. And that just stands to reason. They haven't shut everything down. They haven't forced production to stop. They haven't closed restaurants. They haven't done all these things. So yes, I think I think it was it was predicated on on a model and 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 you you know this is this is an important line of inquiry. Um, and like you know, uh, why why did we let a single model um, with with pretty speculative inputs that that were untested and unproven determine such such big policy choices? I don't have a great answer for you on that, but somewhere along the line, there's a real there's a real deficiency in the, in the democratic and in the sort of decision-making process, I think. Um, somewhere along the line, fear, um, an excessive reliance on, on very speculative modeling, um, and, and somewhere along the line, that the, the, the processes that, that should hold that, that decision in check, that should disallow such a big decision to go through without, as I say, a, a very big burden of proof. That's all just fallen apart, and that's and that's we've seen that not only in South Africa, but we've seen it in the UK, we've seen it in parts of America, we've seen it in most countries in the world, and that's um, I think a real unveiling, let's say, of of a, I think a deficiency in in a, in a lot of modern democracies. So so that's a you know if, if there's themes emerging from this now, things that we learn, one of them is that our political systems need some serious re rethinking. Well, perhaps that'll be one of the upsides out of this, but the question for you uh, from our earlier conversation with Pete Fulyun is, and given that you, you straddle both worlds on the, on the, um, on the numbers side and the investment world, Pitt says that now he would put the chances of South Africa going on a Venezuela strip, uh, Zimbabwean route at about 20%. Uh, which is substantially higher than he was thinking pre-COVID. And, of course, when one extrapolates that, you have to consider whatever investments you're making into JSE-listed companies, even though some of them look terribly cheap at the moment, um, if that is a, a, a factor to really start worrying about. How are you reading that? It's a, it's a sobering comment from from Pete, who I, who I know well and, and, and respect. Um, and I, And I think that he himself wouldn't wouldn't say that 20% is a hard and fast uh, probability i think i think the fact that you're even talking that that anyone could be plausibly talking about 5 10 or 20% you know even 1% chance of us going down that that particular pathway i think speaks to how bad things have become in south africa because those those sorts of tra- trajectories the, the zimbabwe venezuela trajectory is is really the the worst case. The the you know it, it's basically as bad as it gets, apart from outright war, outright sort of civil war and and, and ultimate destruction. Because when you go down the, the, those sorts of routes, everything becomes dysfunctional. Markets, as you know, they become conventionally uh, uninvestable. Really, um, property rights break down. Uh, you, you can't really even be that secure in your in your share certificates that you, that you might hold in that particular environment. It all sort of, you know, all bets, all bets are off in that sort of world. So, um, to, to get into the, the nitty gritty of that idea, I guess the, the, the thing has always been to what degree, um, is South Africa susceptible to, to the outright political corruption that causes your central bank, first and foremost, to be, to be plundered, that causes your central bank essentially to be captured, to be fully captured, for um, very nefarious and narrow political ends. And, of course, the, the result there is that, that money gets printed um, and the currency gets debased. And in that scenario, the, the RAND uh, obviously would come under more pressure than, than we've ever known, you know, even worse than the, than the early mid-'80s, even worse than the early 2000s. We, we would see a currency uh, you know, under huge threat. Um, we would see a large immigration wave from the country uh, there's already been a large immigration wave that would that would continue 
And I suppose in that in that scenario, um, I mean, there's a few things to say. The, the, the one is from a big asset allocation perspective is that you actually want to be getting out of uh, bonds and cash. <laughs> Um, so there are certain there are certain equities in that world that, that can protect your wealth. Uh, companies that have offshore exposure really just become the only sort of game in town. So if you go back to the Zimbabwe days, it was Old Mutual as a big dual listed uh, <laughs> dual listed stock. Um, and, and and a similar thing would sort of start to happen in the SA context. You would get a huge crowding into your Rand hedge stocks if if there hasn't been one already. Um, and you would have to sort of play it in that in that way, and obviously then you would have to just try and offshore um, your assets as, as best as you could, um, as early as you could. You'd have to try and avoid capital controls because that would be the inevitable inevitable result. Now, where are we on that timeline? You know, the Reserve Bank remains a well-run institution, all things considered, as far as central banks go. You know, I, I'm I was a I was once a quite a big critic, but I, I'm. Uh, I'm quite admiring of uh, Lesetje Kanyako and, and most of his team. They've held the line. They've been relatively firm. And, um, you know, I think that the Ramaphosa administration, along with Mr. Mbaweni uh, at finance, in the finance ministry, broadly respect and, and get that the central bank doesn't, shouldn't be meddled with and shouldn't be used as a, as a, as a political tool. I think that there's a huge faction in the ANC that that would love to use the the central bank as a political tool and a money printing machine. And of course, now that we've come into this Corona crisis, um, the I guess the window of what's considered acceptable monetary policy has started to shift. You know, we're getting we're getting an acceptance that that you know liquidity provision and money printing and QE. As much as the Saab tries to deny the word quantitative easing, they are basically buying bonds um, from the banks. They're, they're first and foremost reliquifying the banking system, shoring up bank balance sheets with printed money. Um, it's not in massive scale yet. So far, it's been kind of fairly measured, but it's beginning. And uh, once that process starts, what we, you know, what we learned from the Fed and the Bank of England and the European Central Bank and all these guys, it's very hard to reverse that process once it begins. And emerging markets don't have a good track record of managing such a process well. And, and markets punish emerging markets a lot more than they do developed markets when they misbehave at a, at a sort of money printing level. So, um, these are, these are certainly risks, but right now, uh, so, so Pete's right. That risk has certainly increased. Um, and I guess analytically, we've just got to keep really beady eyes on on what's going on at the central bank how the politics of of south africa's central bank and monetary policy you know is evolving russell lamberti as you can see from the screen there he is uh, the co-author of a book with a little zimbabwean flag in so he knows what he's talking about on that side and also he's a member of the at panda russell thanks for joining us today we appreciate your your inputs and um, lots of Lots of uh, words of caution there and room for thinking uh, more deeply about it. Gigi Alcock uh, joins us now. Gigi has been listening throughout to the uh, conversations and uh, often um, Gigi has given us some unique insights here, both on the Biz News website and and on this rational radio program. Gigi, lovely to have you. Uh, just from a... From, from maybe the big scene that people lose through Russell and Bertie then uh, uh, built on as well. Are you are you starting to see in the informal sector of the economy things that are getting you worried that we might be doing that sort of thing? Hi, Alec. Yeah, I think um, the, what we've seen is that money is really too tight to mention. And um, across the board, even those outlets that have been able to open up have, um, uh, have, have found a shortage of um, income. And, uh, and, and so what we've seen as an example is um, 
you know, if you just look at the wholesale sector and uh, that's supplying the Spaza sector, we've seen that staples or essentials are the key things that people are buying. There are no luxuries being bought. People are focusing on rice, flour, maize meal, uh, cooking oil, those kind of, of elements. I mean, across the board, people are, are complaining that, that uh, even when they are able to open, there's, there's no money being spent. Uh, and I think that this has also prompted a huge amount of that sector, even before the announcement last night. Uh, a lot of those people have just gone back to work because livelihoods have been under pressure. People are receiving no income. And so the risks don't match out the, um, the, the, uh, the ability to not earn an income. Having said that, there's a very big split between informal sector businesses and the social grant people who would continue to receive an income and, in fact, have had a substantial increase. So that's interesting. So people have been going back to work. I know you wrote it on business last week, which said it's really level one in townships. Does that tell us that perhaps the president hand was forced last night and that even though he might have wanted to keep the lockdown going, the reality is that it, 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 isn't, it is unenforceable in many parts of the country. I think there's two things. The first is I have a big question mark how really in touch the um, guys in charge are with what is happening on the ground in the townships. I mean, you know, as an example, we carry on about these uh, social distancing and whatever, and I posted a thing on my social media uh, groups uh, uh, on Wednesday just showing queues at clinics in Soweto. You know, there's a queue um, of probably 200 people outside a clinic in Soweto. Uh, and the same we see for social grants. So, you know, are they are they aware of that? Um, and so... So um, on the one hand, yes, they have no real authority. People have gone back to work. I mean, I had a picture of a of a Metro police uh, car being um, washed at uh, next to a GTI in a car wash, just showing that even the police and the army have thrown up their hands and have kind of accepted a fair amount of of this in the townships. Um, so it's it's a combination of no control, but I, I really do worry that there is not a very um, a kind of good grip on what is really happening on the ground within these communities and within these economies. So what is happening, Gigi? Well, so the primary thing is that uh, no one's got <laughs> no one's got money, so they're having to go back to work. I mean, I highlighted the large, different uh, informal sectors, everything from the spazas to the fast food sector to the hair salon sector. I mean. Some companies have seen 90-odd percent decline in products that uh, are utilized in the hair salon industry. And, and that impact has felt as much in Bryanston as it has felt in Dobsonville. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, what are people doing? They're going back to work. They're struggling. They might be doing it behind closed doors in Bryanston and Soweto or Alex or Swishengorf where they're doing it in the open. Uh, and... Um, People are afraid, people are wearing masks, uh, but but they, it, it becomes also about choices. People haven't got very, uh, lots of choices. And uh, I think what's going to happen in the long term, if I look at the um, impact of this, is that any behaviors that were adopted at this time are going to become long-term behaviors. I think there are going to be benefits to many of the manufacturers who have staple or essential brands. I do think that... Uh, the, the neighborhood store, the local, whether it's a shop right or a spaza shop or a KFC in a township or a, a Gasi Koskota outlet um, or Shisenyama in this, in the neighborhood, that those are going to be the huge beneficiaries of the impact of this because people are buying local. People are trying to save money on things like the cost of transport. So large mega malls, I think, will benefit at the end of the month for three or four days when people go and draw their social grants. But beyond that, we, our economy is becoming increasingly a neighborhood economy. And again, the same applies in the formal sector. You know, you're going to your local spa rather than going off to, to the mega mall. Um, for a number of things, partly the difficulty of standing in a queue a meter apart and having to have your hands sprayed two million times, and exactly the same as applying the township, but it's exacerbated in the township by costs of transport, inconvenience of, of these kind of elements. So I see the winners being basic uh, commodity products and, and local neighborhood businesses, whether they're a hair salon or a, 
for a supermarket. Gigi, there's a, a question from uh, Anita Force, which is, is relevant here because we have got a webinar on Thursday where we're going to be focusing completely on the tobacco industry. And she says in the cigarette ban, what is behind it? Uh, because people haven't stopped smoking. I did read something this morning from uh, the traders uh, in Township saying they want the ban over they need. This is a big part of their business. What's going on there? What are you saying? Look, I mean, I can't comment from the government side. We do have a nanny state, so, um, uh, you know, I think that to an extent they might have, uh, you know, altruistic in, um, reasons and so on. I can tell you from a township business, whether they're hawkers or spaza shops or whatever, this uh, lack of being able to sell cigarettes, the lack of being able to sell high margin products, so the, the revert to essentials has mean that margins are being hammered across the whole range. Uh, you know, if you look at a typical hawker who's selling snacks, sweets, uh, whatever it might be, uh, vegetables, uh, uh, you know, apples, you'll find that their cigarette sales will be a fairly high proportion of their um, margin. Uh, you know, so the others, they really are using them as lost leaders to an extent and they can make money out of them. Uh, we've seen the same with airtime. You know, airtime sales by the roving airtime sellers have, have really taken a, a battering and particularly people are, you know, even SIM card um sales or, or conversions uh, has, has been limited a lot. So, um, you know, so I think that you know, I can't comment from, from why it's being done, but I can say that within the township environment, the average spaza shop, the average hawker um, uh, is, is, is wanting the um, cigarettes to be available again. Uh, you know, one of the problems is as much as they have illicit cigarettes out there, uh, all they're doing is benefiting the cops who demand a bribe. You know, it doesn't stop the selling. It just means that the cops come and, uh, you know, insist on a bribe for you to carry on or else they confiscate your illegal stock. So who's really benefiting out of this is, is not the hawker on the street. And, and, and as, I, as I said, um, you know, they're wanting to, to be able to resell this. We've seen a lot of that um, on the ground. That's quite disturbing. Is that it, I'm sure you'd like to uh, come in on this conversation with Gigi. In terms of uh, the cigarette ban and the cost to the... What he said a moment ago, who's benefiting from the cigarette ban? It's the illicit <laughs> cigarette ban. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's... You know, it's, it's time immemorial. During wartime, uh, the people who made a lot of money were those who were selling the fuel coupons. You know, you would buy fuel coupons and all the, all the people who owned, uh, uh, filling stations really made millions selling illegal or, or, or shifting off these coupons as well. So all you've done is drive it underground. And it's the same thing with lending. You know, if you start to tighten on lending, what happens is that the loan sharks come in. So, I mean, this is, this is just plain into their, uh, they're playing into their territory. And I've no doubt that if you drive around and stop at a petrol station or stop somewhere, you're going to find those goods, as Gigi was saying. So I, 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 and it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? There's no logic to, to the cigarette ban that it's saving health. I mean, these are people who've been, who've been smoking their entire lives. Their lungs are already compromised. You know? So a couple of weeks by not buying, you, you, psychologically, you're doing more damage. But it's, 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 it's nanny state type stuff. I think this is a scandal between NKZ and Cyril saying, listen, you know, I'm going to show you who's boss here. I also want my power mate. You're going to stand behind me on this one. So I think there's also a little bit of a political infighting about, around this as well. And believe me, I know nothing about politics. So uh, you can take that when it comes. <laughs> Gigi, where do you see it going from here? Look, I mean, as I said, everyone's at level one, uh, and, uh, you know, so all, all of the businesses, well, level one in the townships, that is, everyone's going to be returning to their um, work. Uh, there's very little money, so, you know, turnovers in the spaza sector, we've seen turnovers drop as much as 15 to 20% across the board. It has been, there's been a growth in staple foods, but uh, the, the large proportion have actually um, you know, are, are those kind of staple products. Uh, and so the entire economy 
is going to be impacted. The, the demand from wholesalers for products that come from Tiger or Unilever or RCL or whoever might be are going to be impacted from the draw through that process. People are you know, tightening their belts. Uh, social grant recipients have benefited, and so and and this is now means that the uh, the the mom who's now receiving an extra five hundred rand, or the pensioner is earning another say two hundred fifty rand over and above their pension, suddenly have a substantial amount more money that they able to spend, and they're spending it on things like like food. Uh, so what's happening within households is the mom, the single mom or the gogo is suddenly in, becoming increasingly important as a as a, um, a earner of incomes. And uh, so so what we're seeing is this woman-led households is going to be to a large extent uh, uh, reinforced. Uh, and so, you know, if I was in that kind of food sector, I think that's where you're going to grow. I think that number two brands are going to benefit because people are going to want a quality brand, but they, they, you know, don't want to pay the premium. Uh, but uh, even in the rural areas, we've seen livestock sales are down. Uh, my brother works on a goat project there. They've seen 250 million rands worth of loss of sales across 16 districts in KZN. That's just in one sector. Um, that, so, so the impact of this loss of incomes is going to be felt dramatically through most of the economy with the slight uptick of the fact that the social grant people will be receiving uh, more money. Uh, and, um, and, and I think that we're going to go into quite a lot of hardship, uh, particularly in the township economies, environments. So, I mean, uh, there's a large sector of estimated around 30 billion rand in backroom rentals annually that is received by township households. Almost across the board, people are saying, I can't pay my uh, rental for my backroom or I can pay 50% or 25%. And, and that's going to further impact on, on incomes. Uh, not to mention any of the income that is uh, that, that is spent in the townships from people involved in the formal sector who are not going to receive money. I'm just talking just within that informal ecosystem. Uh, there's going to be a huge amount of shrinkage. Gigi, just to close off with, you did warn us right at the beginning of all that, that there was a, a possibility of riots, looting, etc. Has any of that surfaced? Uh, well, I, I suggested that there'd be rights or looting, or there would be um, people would just start ignoring the rules and carry on and, and uh, <laughs> passively ignore it. And, and uh, certainly we've seen that. We said, haven't seen rioting, but there has been uh, in a certain amount of looting uh, in, in some areas. It hasn't been widespread and it hasn't been particularly against um, the kind of uh, the, the the immigrant or foreign traders we've seen very limited amounts of that but what people are seeing is a lot more crime so uh, you know the, in the beginning there was a lot less crime because suddenly the army was there people weren't outside of their homes but that um, we're anecdotally seeing a rise in crimes because people are just um, as you know said uh, unable to to receive income and i think that down the line, that's going to be one of the bigger issues. You know, already, um, you, you know, the, uh, that there's a slight increase, but I think in the long term, as it impacts felt, we're going to have more crime. And, uh, and I think that that's going to be a very big negative side of it. I mean, just the unemployed grant of 350 rand a, um, 350 rand a day that uh, a month sorry that the unemployed COVID grant is going to be given that is one day's turnover for a typical vegetable or cigarette hawker or whatever it might be it's going to do no impact on this sector and the other thing about it is that the vast proportion of businesses in this sector cannot source any form of relief or, or assistance from the government they do not benefit from the UIF, even if they were able to apply from that. They are not, the 300 billion rand um, loan, um, you know, the loan guarantee that's available has no benefit to micro businesses or small businesses or informal businesses. The Department of Small Business Development is still saying that every single business has to be 100% South African, so fine, fair enough. But more importantly, they're saying that you have to have a CIPC registration. We all know how difficult it is to get a CIPC registration. And to put that as a condition to a large uh, portion of our economy that is is uh, 
unable to or has not got that as a precondition to receiving any form of benefit is just bizarre. So the 90% the, the odd of the informal sector or even formal micro-businesses are not going to have any benefit from any of this greatly touted benefits that the government keeps talking about. G.G. Alcock, the uh, author of uh, quite a few books, Cost Economics, Third World Child, and someone you can put that on the screen. Thanks for joining us as always, G.G. wonderful to get those insights from well, this has been Rational Radio on the Monday webinar edition. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to being back in your company again next week. Until then, cheerio.